You're listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at harvestoakville.ca. Let's get our Bibles open to the book of Malachi. Malachi, of course, is the last book in the Old Testament. A short book, but a powerful book. And Lord willing, we are going to be spending our time from now until the end of June going through it verse by verse. By the way, that video um, is not original with us, of course. Many of you have seen it already or versions uh, like it. That is from an app which is called Read Scripture or also known as the Bible Project. And they have many such videos on all the books of the Bible and other, um, other aspects of the Bible. Strongly encourage you to research it, to look at it. You can watch them online. Very, very helpful, just such as that. I encourage you to watch that video a few times and to try to get a grasp of what's happening in the book of Malachi. A lot is said. You can even print out that final chart. You can print out the whole thing for free, download it, print it out if you want. I did that this week. It's just really neat to have, and it's really, really helpful for the context as we come into the book of Malachi together. Again, that was uh, called Read Scripture or the Bible Project. Love the resources that are out there to help us understand God's Word that we may become more like His Son, Jesus Christ. Also, a lot of content was shared in that overview, and again, watch it more than once if you really want to grasp this book, but allow me, though, to review some of this context for us as we begin this new series together. So as we open up Malachi, we understand that God's people have returned from captivity in Babylon, and as they returned from captivity in Babylon, they also returned with great expectations of hope. Why did they have hope? Well, hope was held in the promises of God's restoration and renewal of God's people. They were subject to captivity under foreign rule. Life was extremely hard, so they expected as they were released from this, then all the blessings that they imagined from the Lord would be restored to them again as God's people. Now, this included the rebuilding of the temple and the expectation of messianic rule, uh, two of probably the greatest things an Israelite could ever imagine. But to the great disappointment of the people, the temple was rebuilt, but it was much inferior to the previous temple, to the point where when the older generation saw the foundations of the temple being built, they knew the foundations of the previous temple when they saw the new foundations and its size or lack thereof Ezra 3 tells us they broke down and wept. They actually wept over the reality this new temple was so much inferior to the one they had previously known. The newer generation was shouting with joy, and the Bible says in Ezra 3, you couldn't really distinguish between the weeping and the rejoicing of what was before them. Such a mixture of emotions happening upon God's people. Also, the anticipated blessings of the presence of and the prosperity of God in Malachi's day were greatly lacking. Instead, God's people found themselves in a form of poverty, in pestilence, and tremendous foreign pressure all around them. So once again, what you have as we turn to Malachi is a serious case of unmet expectations. And God's people were not handling it well at all. 
Again, what might have been the greatest disappointment among the people of God was the apparent spiritual destitution among them. What do we mean by that? The presence of God seemed very distant. Malachi 3 implies that the Spirit of God was not dwelling in any powerful form in the temple itself. So the presence of God, the life-giving presence of Yahweh Almighty God was nowhere to be found. So right here, loved ones, right here, we see a fork in the road for the Jewish people. And I might add, right here for us as well, in our context, in our lives, we also find ourselves at a fork in the road. See, what do you mean by that? When you're disappointed, when you feel let down, when your expectations are unmet in terms of what you think God should do for you, when God seems distant, when he feels like he's not drawn close, here's the question, what do you do? What's our response when life goes as not as expected? Where do you go in times like this? Now, the answer to that question can often define a life. How we respond in life when God seems far away, when our expectations aren't being met. Literally, how we can respond can often define a life. At the very least, it can define a season of our lives. What the nation of Israel did in the midst of these unmet expectations is they began to languish in their unfulfilled hope. They became hard-hearted. They became indifferent. They were lulled into a spiritual sleep with a very casual and low regard for God. As one commentator said about Malachi's time, he says, God's people may have been free from blatant idolatry, but theirs had become a dead orthodoxy. Meaning, they had a form of religion before God, but they had no real relationship with God. So, there was head knowledge, there was no devotion. There was no reverence. There was no joy. There was no true adoration. Sure, they came to church, but they slouched in the chair. If you're slouching, it's a chance to sit up now, all right? Sure, they heard the songs, but they hardly sang. Sure, they sat through the sermon, but there was no heart change. They were hearers, not doers. Sure, they passed the offering by, but there was no generosity or sacrifice and giving from their lives. So therefore, what the book of Malachi becomes is a wake-up call for renewed fidelity to the Lord Almighty. Really, in many ways, the book of Malachi becomes a call for repentance with the desire of the Lord for restoration with his people. And in the end, the Lord really says to his people, and this is taken right out of Malachi 3, he says, return to me, and I will return to you. That's what our whole series is going to be titled from that verse in Malachi 3.7. Return to me, says the Lord, and I will return to you. So this is the all-important context of the book of Malachi that we start right now. Let me ask you, as we start this series, where do you find yourself? How's your heart doing? 
Has your passion grown cold? Are you in a place of distraction? Are you like me that you find every day you live in this crazy world, the number of distractions that are trying to pull you away from the center of love in the Lord Jesus Christ seem to be countless? Are you discouraged? Are you fighting the feelings of discouragement as it relates to your relationship with the Lord? Are you disillusioned? Are you confused right now? Are you wondering what in the world is going on? Is your heart divided? Is there division in your heart right now? Yeah, there's some desire for the Lord, but if truth be told, there's a lot of desire for things other than the Lord. And if I'm going to be honest with myself right now, you might be saying, I have a divided heart for sure. My affection's kind of with God, but it's really a lot with the world itself. This was God's people. This is the context of Malachi. You know, the line of the hymn that has always got me is, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. So, loved ones, this will always be the challenge of our hearts. What? To stay at the center, the center of the Lord Jesus Christ. This will always be the challenge of our church, keeping Jesus Christ at the center. And you know what? I love this. That's why God brings series like Malachi into our lives right now. It's not coincidence. He is a sovereign God. He makes no mistakes. And so right now, he brings this book into your heart and mine because ultimately he says this, return to me and I will return to you. Every single person hearing this right now, there's some aspect of your life and mine that needs to return to the Lord. If you sit here right now and you think that you got it all going on for the Lord and there's nothing you need to fix or turn, oh my, let's pray, right? Specifically for you, all right? Because this weekend, the Lord is showing me things have to change. And I'm excited about it because I know the ways of God are always the right ways and the ways of Robbie are always wrong. So therefore, Lord, do what you will because as much as it might hurt, the healing and the power and the restoration will be the greatest thing that I could ever have and need for where I am right now. So loved ones, I hope you sense right now even, and I love you so much. I love you so much. I love this church so much. I hope you sense maybe even right now that God wants to do something significant through this series in your life, in your marriage, in your family, in your friendships, but in your heart. And so I'll pray, but pray with me. Pray with me. I don't pray now because it's the thing you do when you're ready to read the scripture formally. I pray now because without Jesus Christ, we're dead. I pray now because he's the only one who can change hearts. Maybe we just want to humble ourselves a little more than normal, bowing our heads, holding our hands open in a posture. God, would you help me right now? Maybe you want to just crouch a little bit lower, whatever it is. Let's just take a moment to pray together. Father, thank you for the book of Malachi. Thank you for the message within it. Thank you for the love that you desire to extend to your people. And I pray in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, right now, you will take this word and in this season and series, and you will ignite in your church, Lord, a passion and resolve to be right with God. 
Oh, Lord, I pray you will speak to every single heart, every single heart, Lord, a message for them. You have spoken to me, and I pray you will not stop. You will draw me closer and closer to you, for your ways are the right ways. Your ways are perfect and pure. There is none like you, none more satisfying than you. So I pray, Lord, if you need to correct, correct. If you need to rebuke, rebuke. If you need to reprove, reprove. Because all of that will lead to encouragement. And ultimately, it's your love upon our lives. Every man, every woman, every child. Speak, O Lord, and I pray you hear from us. Your servants are listening. In Jesus' name. If you agree, you can say, Amen. Amen. Malachi chapter 1. Verse 1, just verse by verse. Here we go. Are you excited? I hope you're excited. Malachi 1 verse 1 says, and we're just going to read the first verse for a second. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Notice right from the beginning, okay? Notice what God's word is saying to us from God. He's saying this. This is not a word of man. This is not... Malachi jotting down some good ideas and hoping to share with a few people who might want to listen. No, this is a message from God to his people. It says right in verse 1, a word from the Lord. That's clear. Do you see the word oracle in verse 1? The word oracle can be a message. It can also be translated though, and some translations have this, as a burden. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Burden meaning um, urgency, um, seriousness to this message. So notice here, the Lord Almighty has a word. Why? Because he is burdened to deliver it to his people. Now let's just take a time out there for a second. Notice this. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Okay, We're learning right there. The Lord cares for us so much. Why? Why does he care for us? How does he care for us? He speaks to us. He sends his word into the midst of his people because he loves them. He gives his word in the midst of this church right now because he loves us. If he didn't love us, he would cease to speak to us. But he does love us. So he tells us what we need to hear, even if it hurts. Because in the end, when he hurts us, he loves us and hurts us to heal us. Because his ways are best. He cares for us so much. Notice also in verse 1, notice the name Malachi. Malachi means literally my messenger or perhaps the messenger of the Lord. Either way, the intention is very clear. The Lord has an urgent message for his people that must be heard. And so we desire to hear it. Now let's just take a moment here and let's just step back just far enough to understand. Consider how important then God's word is that we endure and are strengthened in this life. God says, you need to hear a word from me because you need to be corrected. You need to be loved. You need to be strengthened. And my word does that in your life. Consider then how important God's word, the Holy Bible, is for your life and mine and for this church. God gives us his word. It's so critical because his word, loved ones, is his voice. If we don't have his word in our lives, we don't hear his voice. If we don't hear his voice, 
I don't like your chances. But you saturate yourself with the word of God. You desire to hear his oracle. You want to know the word of the Lord. You desire to hear from his messenger, Malachi in this case. And that is the life that is about to be directed by the perfect, sovereign, awesome God Almighty. Let's consider then the portion that we're going to see of this urgent message this first weekend. Verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? That's Israel speaking back to God. How have you loved us, God? God says, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says... We are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Verse 5, your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. So we see from the very beginning of this prophetic book, God's intention is, is love for his people. Right in verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord. In fact, this becomes the deliberate heart behind this book. And very specifically, in the first five verses. Now, we can be tempted in verse 2 to read that statement in the past tense alone. I have loved you. But the real meaning of that phrase in the Hebrew is, I have loved you, I do love you, and I will love you. Because God's love is perfectly uh, in the past, perfectly present, and perfectly future. Notice, it's the unconditional love that starts with God's people. The love that cannot fail. The love that will not end. A love that will not be removed. A love that cannot be separated from us as new covenant believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the question is, God says, I have loved you. I have loved you perfectly. My love will never be separated from you. You are my chosen people. Here's the question. Do you believe it? Do you believe the reality of the truth of God's love? Because what we find here as we enter into Malachi is God's people didn't really believe it. They were struggling to believe in the true love of God. The people of God, in fact, began to question the love of God. And this takes us to our first point then, which is this, point number one. We will be tempted to question God's love. We will be tempted to question God's love. Look at verse two again. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Now the question that Israel asks back to God Almighty reveals the heart of God's people. It also reveals the sickness that dwelt within. Consider what's happening here. The very fact that they ask back that question, God says, I love you, and they say, oh yeah, how have you loved us? 
the very fact they ask that question, they are placing themselves on the same plane as God. They are challenging God's character and God's faithfulness. By the very implication of the question, they are actually accusing God of neglect and mistreatment. How have you loved us, God? Have you loved us really? Can you tell us how you've loved us? Because we don't feel like we've been so loved. Now, why would they ask such a question? What caused such a blatant retort in the very face of God? The answer is this. The reason they question God's love, ready, listen, this is huge, is because God had not blessed them in the way that they expected or desired. God was not meeting their expectations. What were they looking for? Here's fundamentally when Israel turned from Babylon and they were rebuilding the temple and trying to form a nation again, here's what they really longed for. They wanted prosperity. They wanted riches. They wanted worldly power and worldly glory. They were desiring the temporal, external blessing of God. And when it did not come to them in the way that they expected, they then fired back and they accused God of not loving them the way that they think he should. How have you loved us, O God? Now just pause for a second and think about the question Israel's asking. And just think about how that question can often be found on the heart of God's people today. I suggest to you, it would rarely be spoken. There would rarely be a time where you openly would say, God, have you really loved me? How have you loved me? Show me. I think often in our minds and maybe in our hearts, there's the voice that is heard within us saying, have you really loved me, God? Show me how have you. I don't feel that you've met my expectations. And I feel that I've been let down by you, God. Have you really loved me? Because when life doesn't go as planned, when finances don't prosper as expected, when trials don't disappear as prayed for, when health is not healed as desired, when my relationships don't work out, when crisis erupts suddenly, when my dreams are unrealized, when culture is crumbling, when the church is weakening, it's here that the voice can begin to whisper up from my soul, how have you loved me, God? And some of us here right now in this room have been asking that very question. Now what's so critical here is the people of God are basing God's love on their own standard of measurement. The people of God are playing judge and jury over God. Their problem is that their vision is so nearsighted. Their hearts are so hardened. Their minds are so clouded. They expect God's love to fit into their man-made box, into their own defined limitations, into their own classification. When you really, really think about it, the arrogance and the presumption of God's people accusing God of this in this way is staggering. And that arrogance and presumption is one of the great indictments of the church, or at least of our day today. Human beings point the finger of God and say, who do you think you are? And how could you do this? And you said you would. James Boyce says it 
very well this way. He says this, perhaps more than any other Old Testament book, Malachi describes that modern attitude of mind that considers man superior to God and that has the audacity to attempt to bring God down to earth and measure him by the yardstick of human morality. This is the world we live in today. We bring God down to our level and somehow we think that he's right where we are and we have the authority and the arrogance to accuse him of such things. This is without a doubt the attitude of our world. It could never be the attitude of the church, not the true church, especially regarding the love of God. So we will be tempted to question God's love. But how do we fight this? That takes us to point number two. It's this. We must define God's love on God's terms. We must make sure in our lives we are defining the love of God on God's terms, not our own, because we'll get it wrong. This leads us to the second part of verse 2. Look at now. God says, Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob. By the way, this is so gracious of God to even respond in this way. So gracious to provide an answer and to show them how much he loves them. Yet I have loved Jacob. But Esau I have hated. I have laid waste to his hill country, left his heritage to jackals in the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Now, verses 2 and 4, you're like, huh? All right? Now, admittedly, there's some deep theological content here, but there's also beautiful theological content here. When contemplated properly will result in awe of the love of God. Now, what God does here in reply to the accusations of his lacking love is he compares Jacob with Esau. Jacob representing the nation of Israel or Judah. Esau representing the nation of Edom. God calls here for a spiritual timeout, and he essentially says, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. You want to talk about love? You want to talk about love? Who are my chosen people? Who are the ones I've set apart from birth? Who are the ones who are my recipients of my unending and forever salvation? The power behind what God is saying here is this, that every single Torah-minded Israelite would know this. They would know this. They would know what Jacob did to merit being chosen over Esau. The answer Nothing. Every law, uh, knowledge, Torah, knowing Israelite would know there's nothing Jacob ultimately did to make him better than Esau. It was the sovereign grace and sovereign choice of God Almighty whose ways are higher than our ways. We know that Jacob was chosen when he was in the womb. He was chosen even before he was created. We know by birth Esau was the older brother and just as much as privileged, if not more, than Jacob. We also know that Esau had the same Jewish father and the same Jewish mother, Isaac and Rebekah. And yet God chose Jacob in sovereign love. Jacob representing the nation of Israel and ultimately loved ones. Jacob from Abraham representing all those truly born again in the Lord Jesus Christ. Consider the love of God over Jacob or Israel. Jacob chosen, set apart, selected, blessed, 
delivered, instructed by God. When God's people attacked, God protected them. When God's people were weak, God empowered them. When God's people were destitute, God provided for them. When God's people wandered, God disciplined them. When they worshiped idols, God chastened them. But as promised, God restored them. He rebuilt them. He dwelt with them. He blessed them. Listen, he loved them in a way that no other nation in the world was loved. The Jewish objector might say, what about the 400 years of slavery in Egypt? What about the 70 years of captivity in Babylon? What about all the hatred against the Jewish people from all these other nations? But listen, listen, listen. Yes, but compared to Esau representing Edom, who would you truly rather be? I mean, who would you truly rather be? Would you rather be temporarily blessed or eternally damned? And this right here is a massive biblical truth that is said over and over again in Scripture. Christians complain about their misfortune. They complain about difficulty, about trial, about health, about opposition, about pain, about sickness, about death. Christians complain about injustice, fatigue, hurt, and unanswered prayer. Christians complain about life. Here's what we must always, always remember, though. Okay, ready? Think of this theological truth. Not one single, truly born-again Christ follower will be complaining the moment that Jesus Christ returns. Not one. Not one single, true Christ follower will have one syllable of complaint against Jesus Christ the moment he returns. Not one genuine believer in Jesus Christ will even consider the trials of this life compared to the eternal weight of glory to be revealed when Jesus Christ returns. Not one. Not one true believer will be thinking about bank accounts, hospital stays, or unemployment. Not one. The only thought they will have as they meet Jesus Christ face to face or they see him riding on the clouds, Jesus Christ, who is eternally victorious and always conquering, all they will say is, thank you, thank you for saving me. And some of you are like, you got a verse for that. I sure do. Romans 8. Look at this verse from Romans 8. Here's what Paul says. For I consider, I cannot tell you how much this is one of the powerful secrets of the Christian life. Our whole world, our whole society is built around, make it easier. Make it more comfortable. Make it about me. Make it about my leisure. Give me more money. Give me more stuff. Let me just go through this life with no troubles. If you want that, you don't want God's will. Paul says, he went through a little bit himself, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing. They're not even worth comparing to what? To the glory that is to be revealed to us. Not worth comparing. The reality of our salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ, which is all his love, his love upon us, no amount of suffering on earth will even come close in comparison to the blessing, the glory, the beauty, and the everlasting joy that we will experience as soon as this life is done. I'm telling you, not one true believer will stand before Jesus Christ at the end and say, you didn't love me. Not one. Not one. Not one. It won't even be a thought. 
Not one true believer will dare to ever even have the thought in their mind, you didn't love me, because all they will see, all they will see, in fact, they will stand before Christ, and they will fall down prostrate before Christ, and they will say, how could you love me? How could you love me? When they see the, the scars in his hand and the wound in his side, how is it that you could love a sinner like me? See the problem of God's people in Malachi? When we define God's love as temporal prosperity and happiness, we will be gravely disappointed. Every time, loved ones, every time you think God's love means that you're richer and happier in the world's terms, you'll be gravely disappointed. But when we define God's love as being saved from eternal damnation and being saved to eternal bliss and glory, well, that's when today becomes another great day. That's when today, all of a sudden, in the root and the reality of the gospel becomes another day you can't believe you're alive to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, it's interesting that this past week I was reading in my God time, Matthew chapter 10. And this is when Jesus is sending out the 12 apostles to do his work. And so he gathers them for a pregame speech, all right? This is all through chapter 10. It's so interesting to see the order of these things. Sometimes I saw this in a new way for the first time, but he gathers the apostles and says, boys, okay, here we go. We're going to go out, we're going to do some ministry. And here's his, here's his pep talk, okay? He's like, all right, I'm setting you out as sheeps in the midst of wolves. Peter's like, whoa, all right? And he says, yeah, and you're going to go out, and people are going to hate you because of me. And they're going to drag you before governors, and they're going to malign you. Oh, yeah, and he says this, and yeah, and there's a really good chance you might be killed. The apostles are like, great, let's go, right, right, right? And at the end of all that, what Jesus says. He says all this, and he says this, and he says, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life loses it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Go out there, apostles. Sheep in the midst of wolves. Dragged before governors. Maligned, hated, maybe even killed. But anyone who loses their life for my sake, Jesus says, you will actually find it. Let me ask you, is God's love to you about worldly prosperity and your glory? Or is his love about that he has saved you to eternal glory? Let it not pass us by here in our North American context that always, and to this day right now, the places where God is most powerfully at work through his gospel are the places where people are suffering the most. And the reason for that is, is where there's immense suffering, the people quickly realize the world is what it really is, nothing. Tim Hamer, director of missions, came back from Lebanon just like a month ago, and he was there witnessing the thousands and thousands of refugee Muslims fleeing from Syria and wherever and coming in, and thousands of them are coming to Christ. Miracles are happening all over the place. They are witnessing the reality of the evil around them. They are seeing the world for what it is. The suffering is so real, they have nothing. Enter Jesus Christ. I don't want the world. Give me Jesus. Our problem here is that often all we want is what's opposite to the will of God. And I'll be first in line to say, my heart must change too. But I cannot get around what's being said here right now. God's love ultimately is not defined when my life is easy. God's love is ultimately defined for me that I was a sinner subject to Satan's wrath, Satan's judgment, 
or, or, or attack and, and, and my sinful uh, attack on me and all that, and then I'm freed from that in the Lord Jesus Christ. That for me is the greatest evidence of love that I could ever have, that God showed his love for us that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. This is his love. This is what we're called to understand. But the people in Malachi's day, they were defining God's love on their own terms. And therefore, that was a critical mistake, and they were defeated. But when you define God's love on his terms, you realize that you can't be defeated. Why? Because think, God's love equals eternal love. God's love is eternal. And eternal love, then, equals eternal life. So the more we are focused on the love that leads to eternal love, and therefore eternal life, the more we are motivated to live in the ways that we should. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said this. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. See what's happening? When all we think is, God love, you, you love me and you to increase my paycheck, well, then all of a sudden we're focused on what is now as opposed to what will be. And then all our, all our motivations become temporal as opposed to eternal. Just before we move on, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. That's a tough statement. Jacob's choosing is definitely the electing love of God, the sovereign choice and pleasure of God, and then inherently in this, even that word hated really means more rejected, the rejecting of Esau. Without a doubt, some will protest right now and say, how can this be? How could Esau be hated? Now remember this, the reason this is brought up in this context is that it's meant to bring comfort and assurance to God's people that they are his chosen people. It's a, it's a, it's a reference of love, of the choosing of Jacob. Charles Spurgeon recounted this. He's a, one, a woman once said to Charles Spurgeon, she said, I cannot understand in this text why God should say that he hated Esau. That, Spurgeon replied, is not my difficulty, madam. My trouble is to understand how God could love Jacob at all. Now think about that. That is, that is more the mind-blowing part of this. How is it that we are loved at all? Jacob, chosen by grace, and so are we. So just let that humble you for a second. Just, just let the reality, if you're saved in Jesus Christ right now, you were chosen before the foundation of the world. Why you? You can't answer that. Neither can I. It's not on your merit. It's not that God saw ahead and said, you're going to make some right decisions, so therefore you're my kingdom. Ultimately, this is coming down to the grace and love of God that happened to fall upon your heart and your life. The love of God that is inexhaustible, unconditional, unconditional and incomparable. The love of God. Let that humble you. Because ultimately we say, why you? Why me? You know, it's, the ways of God are higher than the ways of man. I, I'm so convinced as I read passages like this, and Jacob, I love Esau, I hate it. You know, I like to liken it to this. When we try to understand the ways of God, the will of God, the sovereignty of God, it's like, you ever seen those um, a thousand piece jigsaw puzzles? That's a pretty big jigsaw puzzle. You know, it takes often like a whole summer to get one done. And often when you see the whole jigsaw puzzle finished, it's this beautiful picture of some sort. It's this amazing picture, you know. But let's say that the will and the ways of God is the, is the jigsaw puzzle completed in its entirety. 
You know what we're holding in our lives and in our understanding? We're holding one piece. That's all we got. We got one jigsaw piece of the puzzle. But we often dare to take this little tiny piece with no understanding of anything else, how it fits in, and we accuse God of not being just. And we tell God, but really the reality is the jigsaw puzzle that God holds is not a thousand pieces, it's infinite pieces. And we still have one. But we dare to look up at God and say, if I were you, I would do it differently. That doesn't work for me, man. When Paul says in Romans 9, and he's talking about this very issue, Jacob loved, Esau hated, and he says, you will protest. He says, but who are you to answer back to God? Does not the potter have right over the clay? Is not God in his perfect wisdom and infinite knowledge able to do what he's decided is best? But for us to stand back and say, no, I judge you, God, because I'm smarter than you. Step away from that individual. That, the arrogance of that, to me, is insanity. You say, well, how could God be this? How could that? There's so much you and I don't know. In fact, there's so much we don't know, we can barely come to a conclusion as to the ways of God and to understand His infinite, glorious, sovereign majesty over our lives, let alone the entire universe. Oh, if man would humble themselves and fall down and worship more often than complaining and questioning and accusing God of being something that he could never be. We will be tempted to question God's love, but we must define God's love on God's terms. And then finally this, number three, we must never underestimate God's love. Never underestimate God's love. Look at verse five. He says, your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of, of Israel. Your own eyes should see this. I think there's double meaning in this verse. The first meaning, I think it's this, that God is faithful to do precisely what he said he would do. He would conquer the enemies of Israel. The people of Israel would see his might and his glory, and the people of Israel would shout out. They would say, great is the Lord beyond our own borders. Great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. But the second meaning is a theme throughout Malachi, even in chapter 1. Look at chapter 1, verse 11. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name as a pure offering. Look now down at verse 14 of chapter 1. Verse 14, it says, uh, Cursed be the cheat as a male flock and vows it and sacrifices to the Lord was blemished. Listen, but for I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. So there's, there's a very distinct promise happening here in Malachi and all throughout Scripture, of course. The fear of the Lord will extend to the nations. And you will see this and you will say, Great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. So just place yourself as an Israelite in the day of Malachi, okay? Now just this. Try to imagine them picturing this scene before us today. You say, what scene? Look up here, look up here. This scene. Like us, right now. In this year, in this land, at this time. Even speaking this language. Just try to imagine an Israelite in Malachi's day trying to see into the future, 
2,500 years later in a continent they didn't even know existed, speaking a language they could never fathom, representing dozens and dozens of languages and nations from all over the world, were gathered to worship the one true God, filled with the Holy Spirit of God, worshiping the Messiah, the Son of God. I mean, honestly, the Israelite in Malachi's day would bet their life that this would be impossible. They couldn't even see the word of God going beyond Israel itself, let alone to see what this represents today. I bet you they would think there was a better chance of them climbing to the moon on a rope of sand. Just think about that for a second. It's a good one. (laughs) Climbing to the moon on a rope of sand. What's the point? The point is this. Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Listen, listen. Great is the love of the Lord beyond the border of Israel. How do we know? We're living proof, loved ones. We are living proof. This room right now is living proof. There's no more evidence needed. We are living proof that what? What, ready? We may never underestimate the love of God. Don't ever put limits on the love of God. Which I love the words to this song right here. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair, Adam and Eve, the guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child, he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. And then the chorus says this, next slide. Oh, love of God, how rich and pure how measureless and strong it shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. Don't ever, ever underestimate the love of God. The Lord says to us today, he says, I have loved you. I have loved you. Let us never dare to say, how have you loved us, God? How have you loved us? Let us say to him now, You have loved me, Lord, more than I could ever comprehend. You know, my final question for today is, I wonder who here today needs to receive the gift of love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, Romans 5.8 says, but God, maybe some of you are asking, how has he loved me? The answer is here. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us he died for you that your sins might be wiped away forever gone that you might be given the gift of love and therefore receive eternal life the invitation extends to you today in this place right now oh won't you be saved oh won't you let yourself be loved with an incomparable inexhaustible incredible love of the Lord Jesus Christ, an eternal love that leads to eternal life. You say, what do I do? Give Jesus Christ your sin and ask him that he might give you his love. And then you will never, ever die. And you will receive a love that truly will never, ever fail. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pray. We do pray in Jesus' name. Thank you for your word, which is an oracle to us. 
Thank you, Lord, that you speak to us. Thank you, Lord, that you give us grace and truth. Thank you, Lord, that you are so kind. Thank you, Lord, that you tell us what we need to hear because you know what's best for us. Thank you, Lord, for right now. Thank you for your love. A love, Lord, a love that's so far beyond even understanding, but I pray just a little bit more we would seek to understand it still. Help us, Lord. Help us to rejoice in what matters most, not the world, not the earthly riches, but the gospel, the love of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pray this in Jesus' name.